So um, I had a lot of trouble picking out uh, a good passage uh, for the book that's under uh, discussion tonight. And so this one's a little bit longer. Um, it's probably my favorite one. And so you'll all indulge me because, I mean, you're listening anyway. This is uh, from uh, The Struggle is Eternal, Gloria Richardson and Black Liberation uh, by Professor Joe Fitzgerald. <clears throat> for some time, George Wallace had been wanting to run for president. The Democratic governor of Alabama had promised to put a break on racial integration and to promote states' rights. Two goals he achieved, albeit temporarily, the previous summer when he blocked two black people from enrolling in the University of Alabama. After submitting the necessary paperwork to appear on Maryland's primary ballot, Wallace headed to Cambridge on 11 May for a rally at the Rescue Fire Company Arena. Daily Banner editors decried Wallace's visit because they believed it would worsen the city's image. In an editorial that read a lot like the ones published two years earlier during the Freedom Rides, the editors congratulated the white community for, quote, weathering the storm created by extremists and outside agitators. However, they could do little to prevent seemingly in, uh, inevitable racial confrontation that would be provoked by Wallace's visit because Gloria Richardson was, quote, a militant leader whose goal appears to be continuation of conflict, not a genuine search for solutions. Outside journalists were viewed as adding more fuel to an already smoldering racial fire. When UPI reporter John Cady arrived in Cambridge to cover Wallace's speech, he and another white reporter signed in with the National Guard, a requirement of all press personnel. During this formality, a soldier on duty let them know that they were not welcome. Quote, I'll remember your faces tonight, you fucking N-word lovers. Wallace addressed more than 1,500 cheering white admirers and predicted that Maryland's upcoming Democratic primary would be even more successful in rattling the party's racial moderates and liberals than others he had participated in that year. While Wallace was promoting his racist agenda across town, Senac held a freedom rally at the Elks Lodge on Pine Street to let the white community know that its support of Wallace was an affront to the city's black community. Wallace had political support not only from individual white supremacists, but also from organizational, organizations hostile to black people's human rights, including the John Birch Society and the National States Rights Party. This angered Richardson and other black residents because if Wallace became the Democratic Party's nominee for president, he might actually win the election, and then he and his supporters would usher in another nadir for black America. CNAC's rally started shortly after 6 o'clock in the evening and was attended by at least 300 people who participated in a round of freedom songs before a long list of presenters took turns addressing the audience. A Catholic priest named James Peter Hind noted that the strong speeches included, quote, many prophecies of a long, hot summer if there is no action on the part of the government to improve things in Cambridge. If there was a weak link in the chain of speakers, that distinction belonged to Lonnie 3X Cross, a member of the all-black racially separatist nation of Islam. After he, quote, wandered through fantastic interpretations of history, cosmology, and women's apparel, his uninspiring talk, quote, drew faint applause. Richardson thought Cross's speech dead in the whole rally, but the audience's energy level increased as the remaining speakers gave their presentations. In her address, Richardson encouraged black residents to, quote, insist on freedom now. But she also reminded them of a core tenet of black liberation philosophy. Black people were responsible for freeing themselves from oppression. 
The rally concluded about an hour later with attendees singing a rendition of We Shall Overcome that, as a banner reporter wrote, had the ring of a simple statement of fact. As the people exited the Elk Lodge, they lined up to march over to the Rescue and Fire Company arena. Along them were Stokely Carmichael and Cleveland Sellers, who belonged to a SNCC affiliate at Howard University called the Nonviolent Action Group. The two answered Senac's call for outside reinforcements for his anti-Wallace rally. Senac's decision to hold a march came as a bit of a surprise because Richardson had informed the National Guard her group would not be demonstrating that evening. John Cady had heard Richardson make that statement, and when he asked her about it, she said, quote, I lied. How can we not march with that racist son of a bitch down at the other end of the street? SNCC's John Lewis was also at the rally and he expressed concern that the march, ri march risked a violent confrontation between demonstrators and the National Guard. Richardson recalled that Lewis asked her a series of questions to try to understand the logic behind her decision to go ahead with it. What is your position? Are you just carrying people to the edge of violence? Then what do you do? Richardson was unable to answer Lewis's questions. Quote, I didn't think I could have explained it to him. I was doing creative chaos, she said a reference to the strategy of using various tactics to keep opponents off balance and confused during any given situation. Since the National Guard deployed to Cambridge, Richardson had been acutely aware of the inherent danger in any confrontation between demonstrators and armed soldiers, but she felt that dealing with the National Guard was actually less dangerous than dealing with mobs of armed and angry white people. Two factors led to Richardson's decision to march that night, her relationship with the demonstrators and her leadership skills. She knew the black community intimately. She understood how far its members were willing to go to make a statement against Wallace. Additionally, given Richardson's background in sociology, specifically with regard to collective behavior, she knew what she could do and how far she could go in leading hundreds of demonstrators into a volatile situation. The black community's trust in Richardson was another reason why she was able to lead this mass demonstration. In Cleveland Sellers' autobiography, The River of No Return, he describes the scene as Richardson moves toward the guardsmen. It was a crucial moment, the kind that can make or break a movement. We all understood that Gloria was the only one who could decide its outcome. If she had told us to return to the lodge, we would have done so, even though we would not have wanted to. I'm going through, she said. Without waiting to find out how we would respond, she headed straight for the armed guardsmen. With Richardson in the lead, the marchers headed uh, toward the arena, but unbeknownst to them, Wallace had already left town and was on his way to Baltimore. They got only a few blocks before the National Guardsmen halted them. With that, Richardson's desire for a confrontation had been realized. She started to recite to herself Harlem Renaissance writer Claude McKay's poem, which helped her push, push forward. If we must die, let it not be like hogs. Comrades and friends, hello. Uh, we are in the shadow of Rockford Tower. We're behind enemy lines. We're in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast. And um, we have a very special show um, today. Um, we have Professor Joe Fitzgerald, uh, the author of The Struggle is Eternal, Gloria Richardson and Black Liberation, uh, the book I just read from. Um, and he has, uh, he has come down uh, from, uh, I guess, the, the, the southeastern Pennsylvania region to actually uh, be in the in the bunker studio, so I really appreciate that. Thanks for coming. My pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Well, let's get to let's get to the book. Definitely. Um, 
I found it interesting because and you met Carl earlier and and you know we're in a we're in an ecosystem of like activists and organizers and the struggle really is internal we're we're doing the same thing not exactly the same thing but the the idea is going to continue and continue so i like that that framing even and i do think that there was tons of lessons throughout the book that i think reflect on and people should reflect on to to teach them a lot about what's going on today before we get there well, if I if I may, that's that's exactly how I wrote the book intentionally. I wanted it to be used as a guide. I wanted folks to be able to read this as a case study of one individual and how they they use their their knowledge, skills, abilities, talents, their intellect to be able to make their corner little corner of the world a little bit of a better place. That's so I'm glad you you picked up on the, the lesson aspect. Of the book yeah um, it, it's interesting because we didn't talk about this I'm kind of famous for like not giving anybody uh, a heads up about how I'm gonna do it uh, but it's it's really broken down into topics that are lessons uh, but before we get there can you just set the scene for us because um, as people know my my wife is from the Eastern Shore of Maryland her family's there we're there very often grandkids there and stuff um, and so the idea that this happened there is, is just very intriguing to me because I have a closeness to it. Um, I was introduced to the Cambridge movement through uh, Peter Levy's book, mm-hmm. The my Great mentor. Uprising. Yeah, my mentor. He, yeah, he's, he's, been on, he's been on to discuss that book. And I think it's important as, as somebody who looks at things through a materialist sort of lens to describe this, what Cambridge was like in the late 19th, 20th, and mid-20th century as, as uh, you know, Gloria Richardson is born. Right. That's a really good uh, spatial question and socioeconomic and political uh, question, because when you think of like geography, because I do think about this in terms of geography, I've lived around the United States and when I was in the Air Force, as well as, you know, just in my personal life. Um, And so think of, you know, the eastern shore, like, you know, pine trees, sand, right? You know, the soil is very sandy. It's very low to the water line because it's, it's, it's on the ocean, okay? It's on the Chesapeake Bay, which is essentially, you know, part of, you know, feeds out into the Atlantic. And it highly agricultural always has been as far as uh, back to the 1600s with the British colonial system. So, prior, you know, back in the 16th, the 17th century, it was tobacco. It was always some types of grains, cereals, if you will, that were grown there. Had always been that way uh, in terms of its, its economy, highly agricultural. Uh, be, but because of that, by the 18, you know, the railroad system gets developed after the Civil War. So now it's able to transport this, this, these foodstuffs outwards, along with seafood, obviously, the, the, the seafood industry on the Chesapeake. They're able to transport the, the, these foodstuffs out to, you know, other parts of the Mid-Atlantic and, and beyond. And remember, think of this in terms of also Baltimore is, is really a jewel of 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 the Chesapeake it's 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 an incredibly large industrial and transportation hub on the Atlantic shore of the United States and um so Cambridge is connected even before and there's no bridges connecting it but it's it's you know it's it's uh it's uh boat transportations and you know the, connecting the eastern shore up to Dover up to uh Newark 
Wilmington, if you will, and, and, and beyond like Philadelphia. So it's really industrial. It gets a big, large canning industry built up beginning in the, the latter part of the, of the uh, 19th century. It's steaming along really well during World War I in terms of the industry, the canning industry. So they're canning tomatoes, bean, green beans. They're canning uh, oysters. They're canning... Uh, uh, crab, they're, they're, they're canning everything that, that you can pull from the water and grow on land. And that industrialization is really important for the growth of Cambridge as a city and, and for job opportunities. So you, and that by World War II, it's, it's, it's even, you know, it's another big issue. Okay. So it's another big part of the economy. So think of like, you know, really pretty landscape. And I, like I said, I've been around the country. I've, I've been, I've traveled on business around the country as well. The Eastern shore is, is a very pretty place. So it's pretty, you know, um, quiet, quaint, if you will. And, and the not so subtle subtext is white supremacy. It, 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 it dominates individual relationships between whites and blacks, economic relationships between whites and blacks. And it's white on top and black people underneath in the hierarchy. So this is the world in which you have a collapsing industrial economy after World War II, fewer economic opportunities among black and white workers, still a huge amount of grinding poverty on the Eastern Shore. Uh, some black people and many and more than a few white people in, in Dorchester County, which is where Cambridge lo- is located, you know, lo- you know, f- a fair number of white people living in, in really high poverty environments as well. And the white political leadership totally OK with that. And what you have is uh, a, a growing, growing political movement within Cambridge among the black activist class, which are, you know, laborers, working class folks who are saying we have to move forward. The segregated school system is keeping us uh, locked out of opportunities for the growing DOD jobs, the Department of Defense, part of the military industrial complex, Dorchester County, specifically in and right around Cambridge. Is, is a growing area for DOD contracts for the high-tech industry. But, of course, black people are not getting the, the uh, knowledge, skills, and abilities in, high, in primary, middle, and high school educations to, to be competitive for those jobs. So the education system is keeping them locked out, in essence, of those uh, economic opportunities. And uh, this, is what, this is what black people were fighting for in the mid-1950s and late 1950s. And by 1960, you have the, the, the rise of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, that really capitalizes off of the, the freedom rides in, in February, March, and April of, of 1960. And that just puts huge amounts of, of energy into the Eastern Shore for political movement started by high school students and children, yeah. uh, some of which are Miss Richardson's kids. Yeah, so so this is this Cambridge that Gloria Richardson is born into. However, this sort of leads into the first lesson, especially for me and people like me. Um, she, is, she is a bit of a class traitor. Um, you know, you, you mentioned that the, the radical sort of activist class in the black community were, you know, were, were working class. 
um, probably you know factory workers in some fashion, um, service workers in some fashion. Her 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 family actually were business owners, and and um, you know probably the wealthiest people in the in the neighborhood. Um, and so the first thing I got from it is um, that tension uh, between her budding sort of radical beliefs, um, especially when she goes to university, and her home life, because you describe, and, and I know you'll be able to describe, you know, further, but it, what struck me as a, as a sort of a disagreement she had, I think, with her father uh, or her uncle uh, about uh, about a labor movement. Grandfather, a grandfather. Yeah, yeah. H. Menandier St. Clair, correct. Yeah, so he's a city councilman. So yeah, so so even at a at a at a young age, um, there was this there was this conflict that that sort of m- made her a, cla- a traitor to her class in, in in a certain sense. Now, obviously, she sees um, very close proximity around her. You know what the situation is. Um, it was pretty stark, but. That was the first thing that, that struck me is that um, that tension and 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 what went on in her early life. So I don't know if you can speak to that. Yes, it's you know Richardson had grown up in a you know her maternal and paternal families, both in so the Eastern Shore. She was born in Maryland. She was born in, in Baltimore on May sixth, nineteen twenty two, on uh, nine ten Stricker Street at home. She was born at home, and she. She around the age of eight or nine, around 1930. So she's like eight or nine, about to turn nine. She moves with her family, her mom and dad. She's an only child to Cambridge, where her maternal family is from. That's where Miss Richardson's mom, uh, Mabel St. Clair Hayes, was from. So she moves to the maternal family home, really a large, very large home on uh, Muir Street in Cambridge. And she had always considered Cambridge to be home because they had done so much traveling there, not by not by car necessarily. Uh, sometimes they took ferries from Baltimore to Cambridge because there were always ferries being run between those two locations. Uh, sometimes they were even overnight ones that you would get on at, at in the evening and they would transport you overnight uh, and you'd arrive in the morning. So Miss Richardson always found Cambridge to be home and her her spiritual home and her 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 geographical you know base of operation and her family raised her to really appreciate the black community the 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 working class folks who patronized all the family businesses the funeral parlor the mom and pop shops they had the butcher shop and they consistently told miss richardson we live as this is not my words about myself. I'm, this is what they would say. You know, we live as well as we do because of these black people, these local people who support our businesses. So you owe it to them to do what you can with your own talents and your own, you know, desires and, and, and passion and knowledge and skills and abilities to do whatever you can to serve them. And if that now, that was just a broad a broad family lesson that they that they instilled in her and she took to heart that lesson so she they they were i think as a group if i had to say class traders i think as a group they did not subscribe to what uh this sociologist e franklin frazier who had written the book on the black uh bourgeoisie the black middle class she he also happened to be one of her professors at howard university when she majored in sociology she had always 
she had grown up in a family that was highly critical of of a black um, economic group or a black cl- class group that was going to do its its darnest to try to dissonance distance itself from the masses because Miss Richardson understood that everybody who's black is uni- is is unified because of of skin color and that they all had to be working together for collective liberation and that class distinctions and divisions would not be, be any uh would not be they'd be counterproductive if anything so when she you know read through the black bourgeoisie book by e franklin frazier professor frazier it, it totally resonated with with her and he wrote that i think in 1957 it got published in 57 you know we're talking about 15 years after she graduated and but she had already felt that way and grown up in that family and miss richardson's as a quick story miss richardson's uh mother had said to to her miss to, to miss gloria that when some of the middle class black friends had seen Miss Richardson on television in protest, they were calling Miss Richardson's mother saying, What what are you what is your Gloria doing in the streets? And she's smoking, you know, like so there are these like respectability politics that the, some of the mother's friends didn't understand. And Miss Richardson's mother was a full supporter of Miss Richardson's activism to the extent that she moved back to Cambridge to take care of Donna and Tamara, Miss Richardson's two children, while Miss Richardson was in the leadership position of CNAC, the Cambridge Nonviolent Action Committee. So Miss Richardson's mother was fully supportive of this working class movement. So the second lesson I think is is very obvious and important today. Um, the way once... Once she's connected and and sort of has her foundation, as you describe, about sort of the situation, she makes a very intentional, specific, uh, she makes demands based on um, people's lives. You know, she's she's looking at things like, um, you know, accommodations and so forth that are affecting people there, food programs for people who, you know, know, don't, there's no food stamps, they're just starving. Um, so very intentionally sort of organizing around um, those issues, education being another one, and maybe um, you, you sort of alluded to it before, and this may be a good time to talk about the sort of connection between um, high school students there and the movement. But, but yeah, just being very um, cognizant of what issues are going to resonate with people, what, you know, what's going to material, materially impact their life, and, and, and saying, yeah, that's the stuff that we're going to, that's going to be a foregrounded. That's what we're really fighting for. Very, very good lesson for that. I think even today people should learn that lesson. Yes. Thank you for asking that. Uh, be, and it, this is going to be two parts. The first part is Miss Richardson always said, and, and I miss her even to this day. She passed away two, on February, I'm sorry, July 15th, 2001. So yeah, she, and just a little aside, I was going to sort of mention it at the end, but now's a good time since you mentioned it. Um, yeah, I mean, you developed a rapport and a relationship over time um, with her for a period of time while she was alive. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's important to note that you guys were, yeah, I mean, you, you got this firsthand from her most Correct. of this. Yeah, you know? I, I, I uh, interviewed her, I mean, you know, interviewed her many times, uh, a handful of times in person at her home in New York City. I uh, did... Uh, a bunch. I mean, I don't can't recall how many phone 
interviews with her. She was great on email. I could send her questions. She could she would reply. She had a fabulous, highly accurate and precise memory, which I really benefited That's from. That's very helpful. Oh no, it really, really is. No, I mean for real. But also so but what she has always said was that she she got involved in the movement because of the children, because of her children, because of the youth, because they were the true visionaries. All she did was she, she was jaded. She was like a lot of middle-aged people. She was 40 when she got involved in the movement. She was almost 20 years older than many of those SNCC uh, folks who were in college. And she she was just like, you know, nothing's going to change. She was, she was my term. She was jaded. Okay. And it was really the youth and, and the fact that they, they weren't jaded and they saw, they were thinking creatively about their own futures and wanting a better life. And she was impressed by their dedication, by their commitment to the tactic, the tactic of nonviolent direct action. And that they were willing to to risk a lot to make their world a better place. And she felt that when she could lend a hand, she would do that. And, it, and obviously it ended up being where she assumed a, not a formal, not a formal leadership position because CNAC, the Cambridge Nonviolent Action Committee, was an adult affiliate of the SNCC. So therefore it was member-driven, group-centered, bottom-up, uh, not hierarchical at all. So she was one of the co-chairs and there was an executive committee and they voted on things. And, you know, she wasn't always on the winning side of, of, of the vote of what to do or not to do. So, you know, but she went along with this. So she was not a, an official formal leader, but she was a de facto leader of the movement. And the distinction is important because she never walked around calling herself the leader and neither did the people in, in the CNAC organization, but they understood that she was serving as a leader. She as a servant leader. Yeah. And that's an important point too. We make a distinction, um, normally when we're talking about politicians, but it's, it's a point well made in this, um, context as well. There's people in leadership positions, and then there's leaders, people who people will follow and trust and listen to what they say and can organize groups of people. A lot of almost all the time, they're not the same, and so that's a very it's a, it's a, it's a people should not let that um, escape their their memory. That's that's an important point. Right, and if I may add, as a, as a I teach political science too. At, at Cabrini, at, at least for the next academic year, I do. So, <laughs> but the thing is, you know, the difference between uh, formal power, like if you're, if you're a police officer or a law enforcement officer, you actually have authority to, to do certain things, okay? That's real power. There's also implied power that basically the kind of credit, when you have credibility, that people look to you and they, they, will, they will go they will consider your, 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 your suggestions or your thoughts and, and then maybe come along with you in terms of agreement and that kind of building credibility and exercising in implied power. That's, that's what she had. People really deferred to her as, as, as somebody who number one, they were, she was not going to sell them out. They could trust that she, whatever she was doing was for the group, not for herself or self aggrandizement. And, she was an actual real leader, even though institutionally within CNAC, she was just one of approximately a dozen or so people who had equal voting power. Uh, yeah. yeah so, and it comes up in that in the passage that I read, too. Uh, you know, this, they would have followed her if she just said, 
no, they'd have went back. If she said yes, they'd have followed because right. they just they trusted her. She had that credibility to say, well, this is what we're doing. Yeah. So having so the other thing that I think helped build credibility for her as an activist among the group among black within came black cambridge and among all the activists and those coming from without those like stokely carmichael who was a student at howard at the time cleveland sellers who incidentally i interviewed mr uh dr sellers for, for the book i also interviewed john katie the the reporter that... so you spoke it was it was interesting i i because we do sort of media stuff now we've been doing it more in the last say two or three years um the the reporters who were there uh and it's mentioned in that passage really were a good source i didn't realize you he was still around and you could speak he, to him. he yes he was i see here, here's the other thing <laughs> what i did in the united states air force was i was a dental lab tech i made dentures bridges crowns orthodontic retainers etc i pay attention to details i know how to solve problems creatively I make I do everything I can to make the best prosthetic for Pete for patients that kind of dedication to details to following through to making sure I've done everything I can to make a successful intraoral prosthesis I use the same skill set when I became a biographer when I became a scholar so I every time I saw somebody's name pop up like the reporter I just googled John Katie I found his name I knew I found him online. I was able to contact him by doing an internet search on the white pages online. I emailed him or I called. I can't recall exactly what it was. He was thrilled to speak with me. I mean, and I did that with everybody. I literally tried to track down everybody. I interviewed Dick Gregory for the book. I interviewed Senator Edward Brooke, who was one of from the United States Senate from Massachusetts. He was a classmate of Miss Richardson's. I, I mean, I did everything I could to speak with everybody, including Miss Richardson's second husband, and he refused to speak with me. He's still alive as far as I know. So I'm saying yeah, he was I the, did the photographer. Yes, Frank Dandridge, a really important American also, really, really important. Uh, somebody should should be doing scholarship on him if, if he, they can get him to speak with them. Um, so I the reason why I give you this context is like if folks are out there thinking if you're doing oral histories with people and you've got the time and the ability to do so Google everybody's name that comes up in the oral history try to try to make contact with them ask them you know memorialize these stories as much you can because I could not have produced the kind of doc book that I did without number one speaking with Miss Richardson and then following up to, to see if I could corroborate everything she was saying and and she, like I said, she had a really precise memory, and she was on spot on. She didn't recall everything in terms of dates necessarily, but she really captured accurately what happened, and she was fair about people, even if she didn't agree with them as as uh, activists or or she didn't necessarily like them. She was still uh, generous in in spirit. With well, them. it was, and it's clear she's like a. Private, sort of like a just doesn't describe it properly, but you know no, that's good. She's she was very private. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, she had uh, uh, her her two children, uh, and and then was divorced, uh, married uh, a photographer moved yeah, to New York, and was uh, you know, and then was divorced. But then you know, really spent um, you know the last decades of her life just doing other stuff. You know, working for the state. So she 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 wasn't. I think you know 
the reason people gave her credibility and trusted her is they knew she wasn't in it for like personal ambition, and her whole life is a testament to that, really. And and there there's not a lot of personal um, animus, no beefs, you know, no. And and there's a there's a the last lesson, um, just as a heads up, is misogyny, and I'll uh, somebody's working on um, a long essay about this right now in the activist community here. So that hasn't gone away. But yeah, I mean, it's a re- it's a real testament to you know the reason people trust you. You 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 know you've lived your life like that. Yes, and and the second part of of this is how she can you know she really built credibility. She had been building credibility within Black Cambridge prior to the movement. She had been extensively involved in um, like uh, continuing education programs, basically community based. Uh, re- recreational educational programs for black cambridge in the mid to late 1950s so she had already telegraphed just just by her work and dedication to the black community again carrying out the family expectation that she served the black community where she lived that they already knew that she was doing what she could to make all black people's lives better uh now, when the Cambridge movement starts, it originally organized around desegregation. This, this, her children and, and the other high school students were, were uh, and some grade school students like her, her daughter Tamara, they were involved in desegregation protests of public accommodations because that had been like, you know, they're, they're, that was their thing, okay? Uh, the, this, the children. And the, the, Miss Richardson and the other adult parents were, were also very supportive of this as well. And what happened was when the some of the black ministers in Cambridge who were, as Miss Richardson would characterize it, as being in cahoots with the whites downtown, um, the white leadership, they said to these black students, you know, it's okay, you know, stop your protesting and we'll take care of the segregation problem. And of course, nothing happened. So the students, the children were demoralized. Miss Richardson and other adults uh, decided to step into the breach. Miss Richardson joins even that a little later than the other, even after uh, CNAC was formed. So it's important for folks to remember, and I see this consistently, and you didn't do this, but I'm, uh, you didn't do this, Rob, but other people have done this. Miss Richardson was not a co-founder or one of the founders of CNAC. She she was supportive of its creation, but she was not one of the founders. She joins it a couple months after it's already been created. And I think that's an important distinction, okay, that, you know, she wasn't a co-founder. She joins it later on and then asks to be a co-chair of it with another woman, Inez Grubb, because they are going to be uh, helping to guide and uh, the, the focus and the energy of these adults who are a part of this adult affiliate of SNCC and to be in support of the students. What happens is, and I'm, get, I'm getting to the point here, what happens is they were originally organizing, continuing organizing around desegregation. But because Ms. Richardson earned her bachelor's degree in sociology and she was trained on how to write a research instrument called a survey by E. Franklin Frazier when she took a grad course with him she had to actually appeal to him to let her into the class. He did. Uh, she also worked with E. Franklin Frazier on his book, on doing some of the research he did on the black church. I think the book is called The Negro Church. I can't recall, but she, her, his work on black church life in America. So she 
knew how to write a research instrument. So what she did was she designed a survey because she's like, let's this, let the community drive what the, the agenda is supposed to be. So she did a, a, a needs assessment through, through survey and it had all these questions on it, like a, like a really good survey would, and that the children in this community went out and administered it. They brought back the survey responses. The folks up at uh, the social scientists at, at Swarthmore did all the, the, uh, the data analysis and correlations and provided the, I think the formal re, uh, document or at least a fair amount of it. And th- this community needs assessment designed by Gloria Richardson because of her background in social science sociology is a great example of how somebody uses their education, their knowledge, skills, and abilities, okay, and and helps to drive the black liberation movement. That's That's what I wanted folks to get from this book is that you know, whatever coursework you're taking in college or continuing education courses, if they're night classes or, you know, it doesn't matter if it's like a PACEP up at Temple University, which is an adult education program that's really grounded in, in uh, African, I would say black studies, some might call it Africana studies, but it's a distinct program in, in Philadelphia associated with Temple University called PACEP. It's an, it's an acronym that, that I... Uh, we're not. We're not going to. We're not going to hold you to it. Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, <laughs> like this is the kind of stuff that Miss Richardson and other people have been doing with their, their training, their knowledge, and their talents, and that that helped her to build credibility because it wasn't just the administration, the design of an administration, of the of the survey and the report. It was that she and the other folks on CNAC said. This is where we have to go. This is what the community is telling us. This is what we have to focus on. If this is a community organization, CNAC answers to the black community. It doesn't tell the black community what needs to be done. The black community tells CNAC what needs to be done. And CNAC goes and does what it can to make sure that those goals, the solving of those problems that black people face, what she, Ms. Richardson described as bread and butter issues, lack of housing, Poor housing, lack of some people. People were living in converted chicken coops, okay, without running water and sewage. Um, they were, uh, uh, you know, segregated housing. Police brutality was one of the top five. I think it was number four out of five of the issues that the black community raised in in the survey results of the survey data. And number five out of the the, the top five was desegregation of public accommodations. So it was jobs, housing education were the top three. I don't know which ones were, were, you know, which particular order, but the top three were jobs, housing, and education. Those were the sore points that black Cambridge wanted to be addressed. And that's what Ms. Richardson and her colleagues on CNAC did. So that's, that's credibility because they knew that when she was going to get stand up and speak on behalf of CNAC, she was really speaking on behalf of the black community. Yeah. She was, yeah. I mean, Again, such an important lesson. Nothing really works. We talk about looking at history from below. We talk about organizing from organizing broadly um, in a mass movement. I mean, it's an incredible lesson. We should still all be thinking about it like every day, no doubt. Um, the third lesson um, is tactics. I think people um, 
I think she had a, a very clear mind about this. Um, I love the idea of creative chaos. It seems like it's chaos, um, uh, but it's 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 very intentional. Um, everything from the first point I I, I wanted to make, and, and you could probably clarify talk more about it is she understood the local political dynamic, but she but she did not work within necessarily within that. Um, she was very ready to call for electoral boycotts if necessary, referendum boycotts if necessary, because, you know, so so she understood the dynamic. She understood pressure points. She understood how she could go outside of Cambridge to the state or even the federal government. Um, so she understood how to apply pressure and she understood the, 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 the machinations of, of the political scene, but, you know, did not did not accept that things were going to work through that. Um, that was a huge one. Um, if also, I, if also, also the difference between nonviolent direct action, but uh, violence in self-defense. Okay, another tactic. But start. We can start with the first okay. one. Well, you know, a co- couple things. Uh, one is, I. So the Miss Richardson is a. She's she's passed away. Miss Richardson was a completely dedicated activist to using outside pressure on the social and economic systems okay because she believed that those were the most effective and quickest ways of actually achieving change not working from within the political system okay particularly within the political system through through uh elections through you know uh, appointed positions as far as policy makers who are uh, civil servants or the the bureaucracy she figured that the and history has borne out correctly that the the most the quickest and most significant change, even though it may not be as significant as folks as folks want, but the most significant and quickest change comes when outside pressure to the system is applied consistently and creatively. Okay, because if you're in the political system and you're using the, your energy primarily through uh, the political system of, say, voting, petitioning government. And they did all that. They, that was in, Those were important parts of the process as well. But she was a big supporter of saying, okay, go, go register to vote, vote, and see what happens, and, and see what changes. Her point being, nothing was changing, because this is 1960s. Okay, so she's like, look at the outside, apply pressure from the outside. So that, that type of, like, where do you apply the pressure? And she, she knows that it's both and, it's not either or. But her 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 passion was outside the system pressure, not trying to change things from within the system. Because when you're working from within, you can be co-opted. Okay, and plus, if you're a legislator at this at the city, state, or federal level, you know, if you're not in the majority or the you know, what have you, you, you it's nothing can can happen. You can still be. Uh, you can still be thwarted with your with your desires through maybe the electoral college because that's just one big national um, gerrymandering. So, when it comes to tactics uh, of nonviolent direct action and armed self defense, I disagree with you in terms of I disagree with the use of the term violence when people are using self defense only because I think what it does is it allows detractors of black liberation to say, okay, people are using violence to achieve an end. And I think that it opens up an opportunity for people to just focus on whether or not people are being violent. 
and I and I the, the example I use is we never call the so-called founding fathers or found founding you know founders of the of the United States violent. But when you overthrow your government with the use of force, which is what you know they all did, George Washington included, that's violence, and it's never characterized as violence. So I would never characterize any person who's defending themselves from harm using uh, uh, self-defense, even armed self-defense, as being violent. That's just something I want to I point out. No, I think that that's a fair assessment. I, I, I guess I get caught up in it because I, I do think the other way. I mean, I'll go on a screed about, like, George Washington starting the Seven Years' War. <laughs> and, right. and the only reason they wanted to secede was because they wanted to take more— they wanted to go west further and steal more shit. You know, they were just—he was a land surveyor. Yeah. And so they wanted to go further, and, they, you know, the monarchy was like, we can't protect you all that far out there. Right. They're like, well, we'll do what we want. And he, and he was squatting on land that yeah. by, by royal decree of Britain. And he was an illegal immigrant. Anyway, I, yeah. I don't want to get off on a yeah. no, I about you, Washington. I get you. But, like, so, so my, when I, you, you are, it's better that you point that out, though, because generally people will, will hear violence and immediately have a, have a feeling about it. I do look at it, that as violence, so I think there's righteous and, and acceptable violence. But, to call, but I think the way that you're framing it is better. Um, any kind of act in self-defense, armed self-defense, is still just self-defense. Um, so it's a better way to sort of frame it, to look at it, because, um, yeah, I've been telling people how bad George Washington's been for a long time. It doesn't, it's not making any. No, no, you don't get a lot of traction with that one. No, our, our friend, the historian, uh, Professor Dale Norwood is, uh, is sort of working on a, doing a lot of research about like the American businessman going back all the way to like Washington. Um, so yeah, he'll, he'll appreciate this. He'll appreciate this little jam, but yeah, it's, it's very hard to get people to understand what just violent lunatics these people were. Um, but in any case, I think your framing is, is, is much better. Yeah. And and also what it does is it doesn't allow the, the perpetuation of the unreasonable and actually anti-black expectation that black people should just willingly allow themselves to be literally assaulted and not resist. And that uh, most black, and that's what's important is that most black Americans in in U.S. history, including today, defend their right to Uh, self-defense. Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. King, he used to carry a pistol. He had armed guards. When he decided to become a pacifist, that's when he got rid of his firearms. He, he stopped having his bodyguards being armed. And Bayard, Ruster, Bayard, sorry, Bayard Rustin, he also was a pacifist. But being a pacifist is a way of life. But using armed self-defense is a tactic to stay alive, to fight another day. And Miss Richardson, Fanny, Miss Fannie Lou Hamer, Miss Ella Baker, w, Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, Walter White of the NAACP, they all supported black people's right to self-defense. And you can read about it in my book, The Struggle is Eternal, and the citations in the footnotes where it points you to where you can actually check to see where the scholarship has actually pointed to the, these people saying that they support this right. Yeah, and there's and there's more of it, um, sort of a, a little bit later, um, when for a brief period of time, uh, Miss Richardson was was organizing with even more radical folks, which I really got into because I, there's I didn't have a lot of that, I didn't know a lot of that part. I knew about the Cambridge movement, but not a lot about 
with um, Ram. The Malcolm X, the yeah. Malcolm X portion, uh, which I thought was really, really interesting. But we'll, we'll get to the end. With the end. I, I just have one more sort of lesson I want to talk about because um, this is one that I knew. It's a, it's a, it's a strain through you know her, her whole life in organizing, especially at the time she organized it. Um, but I know that there's women in our movement locally who are, you know, not treated the way you would think people would be treated in the 21st century. Um, And, of course, Miss Richardson was um, probably the victim of that everywhere she went, but it's misogyny. Um, The way she was treated um, by other sort of leadership people um, throughout the Cambridge movement and and beyond, um, I think, um, is, is worth noting. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, um, how, how do you, when you, when you talk about that, how do you, how do you talk about it? Uh, so that's really important. I'm glad you, you raised that because there's a passage in the book, um, I can't recall, but it's, uh, by Paula Giddings, When and Where I Enter. That's the name of the book, When and Where I Enter by Dr. Uh, well, Professor Paula Giddings. And she did interview, as far as I know, she did interview. I know she interviewed Miss Richardson, uh, for the book. And Miss Richardson talked about, um, uh, being called a castrator, being called a castrator of black men and that, in the book, when and where I enter, it's that she was called a castrator by black black men in a, in Cambridge, Maryland. When I spoke with Miss Richardson, Richardson about this, she and by the way, that has been repeatedly reembedded in other people's scholarship. And Miss Richardson said it happened, but it didn't happen in Cambridge, and it was one person. It was Roy Enos from Core who becomes this right winger. I don't know if you know anything about Roy Innocent of core, but he became this right winger working with uh, right wing Republican politicians and moving core away from uh, a, a, a real, you know, local bread and butter type of organization to uh, basically a black capitalist, black affiliation of, of, of the Republican party in New York state as well as uh, GOP politics nationwide. Well, Rustin as well, I think. I think R- he, Rustin, had bad, he had a bad turn. He took a bad turn. Miss Richardson cr- critiqued Rustin as well on, on something else we can get to if, if you'd like. But the reason, so Miss Richardson said that she was on a radio program, and I cite this in the book, and I find the radio program uh, in the New York Times advertisement of the radio program. Miss Richardson said that she was on a radio program with Roy Ennis and Betty Shabazz, Ms., uh, Dr. Shabazz, Malcolm X's widow and Roy Ennis calls her a calls Miss Richardson a castrator. So black men in Cambridge. And by the way, when Miss Richardson experienced sexism in the movement, it was never by black men of Cambridge or in Cambridge. Okay. It was, it was white men and black men outside either in, sorry, it was white men in Cambridge or white men and black men outside of Cambridge. And those black men would have been uh, other civil rights activists or so-called leaders. And I say so-called because white America's perception of who a leader is and black America's perception are two different perceptions. Okay. So she experienced sexism in the movement, but it came from um, 
it just came from without outside of Cambridge. It came from, you know, the treatment at the March on Washington. It came from, uh, <laughs> it came from, you know, sometimes outside activists coming to Cambridge and lending a hand, but then thinking that they could speak for CNAC when they, they couldn't only Miss Richardson could speak for CNAC because she had that credibility to do so. So one of the things I, I bring up in, in the chapter, one of the chapters is that, you know, when Miss Richardson's involved in these high stakes negotiations and, and the white people are not shaking her hand because she's usually the only woman in the room of, of, of any importance as far as for the purpose of that meeting, she's, she, she would acknowledge, she did acknowledge that occasionally there were other women who were you know, in or around the meeting, but, but really coming as either a secretary staff or people checking in if, if people needed something, but they weren't there as negotiators. She was mostly the only woman there in those settings. So there were these gendered elements to, to her engagement with these whites and other black leaders that they were not looking at her as one of the guys basically. So shaking hands or not shaking hands becomes one of these rituals that we as men do or don't do depending on who we're engaging. And she, she always picks up on this. They would, uh, I know there's a bunch, there's a bunch of little stories and I think you yeah. explained it. Well, I, I, it didn't, it didn't gel in my mind until you just explained it. It's sort of like institutional sexism. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was like the March on Washington because it was a big planned centralized thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, you know, she goes to a conference and she gets seated with the two other women in like another room or whatever it was, right. like another table. Right. Or, you know, it's always like large conferences or settings like that or um, other organizations coming and sort of trying to like, uh, you know, take over. Right. Um, but it's always some sort of institutional um, well, it, I, you know, I don't, I don't know how else to, I, maybe well, institutional is the wrong word. Yeah, well, I, OK, I, I, I might not necessarily say inst, institutional, but but it's customary. So it's custom. Right, right, right. And it's it's this it's a cultural custom of how we have been socialized at when we were, you know, if we self-identify as boys, you know, if, if we basically are are uh, cisgendered, you know, we, we identify with the the uh, and, 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 and dress and, and speak and behave in gendered ways and miss richardson was aware of this but what she also did was that she leveraged that sexism against it she it was like judo you know you with judo you take that energy that's being directed to you and you redirect it against the person who's who's attacking you so what she had said that it's a funny story because when I interviewed her one time, she was saying, oh, yeah, the, the, the men in Cambridge, the black men in Cambridge were like, it'd be great for Miss Richardson to be in these meetings because these men don't know how to deal with women in any ways because they're just so not used to dealing with women, especially strong women who happen to also be black. Th- these black men were, were basically giving Miss Richardson an insight of like, you're going to throw them for a loop. They're not, as she said, she goes, they didn't, weren't going to know if she was making sense or if you will, you know, talking quote unquote crazy. Uh, so she leveraged, she utilized that sexism against her in terms of being, you know, not, she never compromised on black people's rights. She never did. And the thing is, Sometimes, many times, whether they be white commentators 
writing as editorialists, even in the black press, but, but, you know, also the white press criticizing her for being basically obstinate and not being rational or reasonable, which, which are tropes that sexist men, sexist men have been using for, you know, for six, seven, 8,000 years already. Okay. It's nothing new, but that, you know, it's they're emotional or they're, you know, they're, they're not being rational or reasonable. Miss Richardson was like, this is this, we're giving you demands and and, and look what happens. They don't know how to deal with her. And that's what they acknowledge. They don't know how to deal with her and they don't know how to deal without her. And that's that's essentially a, a, a close paraphrase of what one white politician in Cambridge said about Miss Richardson. She completely threw them off their game because she wasn't in there to shake their hand or make them feel good about being around her. She wasn't there to make friends. She wasn't engaging in meaningless uh gender rituals such as glad handing which she found really problematic with some of the white some of the black men that she was involved with is in terms of activism going to some of these meetings with state maryland state government officials she was really bothered by that that glad handing and yucking it up with these white white leaders who were trying to keep black people down she found it unseemly and she was offended at that and, they, and those men spoke, those black men occasionally spoke as if they were speaking on behalf of Cambridge, Cambridge's black, black population. And Mitch Richardson never felt the need to correct them because she knew that when those meetings were over, she was going to go back and report to CNAC and she was going to tell, like, this is what these white people are saying and this is what we, you know, what do you think we should be doing? And they all would agree. And then they would think that they had these deals with these other black men who showed up at the meeting they didn't show up. They were there with Miss Richardson, but Miss Richardson never corrected them because that's also part of the creative chaos. Because these white people would leave these rooms going, "We've got an agreement," and Miss Richardson's like, "They ain't got anything." Yeah, I mean, it's covered in the in the in the passages I read in the cold open, right? It's like first of all, the the editorial basically says, "Ah, this is a, you know a hysterical woman." Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. But then what does she do? She's like, "I just lie. I just do what I don't," you know. They think they have a deal. Two weeks later, we're gonna we're gonna do a direct action, and they're gonna be like, "Oh, I guess we we don't." Yeah, well, you know that's the be- the that's the best way to do it, really. I mean, you thought you did. Apparently, you don't. And this is this is what we're doing. We're doing what we do, regardless of having to sort of like glad hand and p- pretend that we're negotiating with you. I I, I found that uh, around here we call that the bunker mindset. We love that idea. Uh, we have too much, like um, too much glad handing, and not enough, you know, hand to hand combat. Um, but I think people like. Um, uh, how do I want to put this? Because I, I think some people are going to think that I'm talking about them. That's good. It's a. Uh, it's sort of like, it takes courage. It takes real moral courage. Um, to say, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. Uh, this is we're gonna do what we're doing, and uh, just forget about anything else. Like, and if it it takes you by surprise or if you think that that was mean or if you think I should have told you what I was doing before I did it, um, too bad, you know, and, and I think it, it, but it, but you have to really, you have to have thought about what it is that you're doing and why it is that you're doing it and, and just stick to that. And it, and it just, it takes, it takes courage. That was the thing I took away from it. I think more than anything, um, but before we before we end this, I do want to talk a little bit about um, her her brief sort of organizing with Malcolm X, and then her um, her her sort of as she stepped back from public organizing, 
Um, you know, she was still, um, you know, she was a, a, a state employee. A c- city, city. City employee, employee excuse yeah, me, New that, York. No, that's okay, yeah. yeah I, she was it's, a, it's, it's bigger than most of the states in the union. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But she was, a, <laughs> you know, did, did uh, social services in, yes. in, in, in New York. S- New York City Department for the Aging. Yeah. yeah. Can you can you just talk a little bit about um, the sort of the, I mean, I there, there was certainly friction and, 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 a, um, and a struggle between more radical aspects of CORE and um, it was core, and it's not an acronym. It's just core. Right? Congress of Racial Equality. Oh, core. Okay, yeah. yeah. There was another thing. Oh, it was I think maybe it was ACT. ACT, which ACT is which is just just act. the word. It's ACT. not an acronym. Right. Correct. So there was this. Um, there was you know this friction. Um, I know that um, the assassination of Malcolm X happened when um, she was living in New York, mm-hmm. and I know that had a sort of a, an effect on her. Obviously, yes, it did. And then she stepped back from sort of public. Um, Public activism, public life. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the end, that you know, the last several decades of her life, really? Sure. You know, Miss Richardson, she was, again, th- th- what what I hope, not just through the book, but also through this podcast. And thanks again for the opportunity. I uh, this this is this has been really good. I want folks to remember that um, when, in terms of Miss Richardson's activism and and her as a as a a case study is that uh, she said nobody has all the answers. Nobody has all the answers. She knew that consultation and consensus was key to any organization's ability to, to be effective and to be agile and to be able to keep moving forward on meeting its goals and addressing its problems, okay? Uh, Having said that, she also knew that the psychology, the group psychology, uh, that people should not be looking to one person as a savior. One of the terms that I, uh, I, I think I used in the book, but it's, it's covered, it's actually, I first saw it being introduced by uh, Professor Giddings in her book, When and Where I Enter, is that a messiah complex, a complex being a psychological condition where people think that they, they need to have a messiah. But what happens with the Messiah complex is that if the Messiah gets murdered, assassinated, or dies unexpectedly, or or um, is maybe not actually a good person, basically what Miss Ella Baker said, all you know, everyone has feet. Leaders have feet of clay, or kings kings have feet of clay. If I'm paraphrasing Ella Baker's uh, quote correctly, but basically, you need to worry ab- about propping up people. And looking at them as your savior, Miss Richardson was from this was subscribed to the Ella Baker school of thought, which is, you are the leaders you've been waiting for. You have the answers within you individually and as a group collectively, and that not everybody is necessarily going to be able to be that public speaker, that leader who go who can go out and deliver a you know a good you know five point message and then boom let's let's break out. But that that leadership is. It looks differently, and 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 create. It's it's more than just a public figure. Miss Richardson did not think it was good for the Cambridge movement for her to consistently be the the focal point, being seen as the de facto leader. So when she gets, so when the the Treaty of Cambridge is signed, that's the informal name, the unofficial name of the agreement between 
the city of Cambridge, the white power structure, and CNAC, which incidentally, it is a list of things that the white people have to do, and it includes zero things that miss, that the black people had to do. So in other words, it's a rip sheet of this is what black white people have to do, and this is what black people are going to be able to get from these white people. With, with one, one SOP, S-O-P, one SOP of, you know, promising not to, to, to demonstrate Okay, that's what Ms. Richardson signed off on. And I asked her, I go, why did you just do that? She goes, because I knew white people weren't going to uphold their end of the bargain. So we, of course I could, I could, I could agree to that. They weren't going to uphold their end of the bargain. And we'd go back to, to demonstrating. Th- those are her words. I'm paraphrasing. But I'm saying, when you look at that, she, she knew that she had a particular time frame to be effective as a, as a de facto leader. Okay? And that other folks needed to step in who had maybe different ideas, maybe a different type of skill set, because that kind of rejuvenation is necessary for every single grassroots movement, that you constantly need more people coming in because people are going to get burned out, and that's also what happened when she got burned out. She was under threat of murder for two years, okay? that She basically alluded to the fact that she had PTSD, and she needed to take a break. I'm not putting words into her mouth. When I interviewed her at Cabrini University back in 2015 when she received an award from us, uh, the Ivy Young Willis Award for, for Women's Service and uh, Public Service, she she meant, she alluded to that, that basically, you know, she actually, I think, used the term PTSD. And she kind of chuckled about it, but it wasn't, she was actually speaking truth. She was She was tired. She was physically exhausted, emotionally, you know, exhausted. And she was suffering from a lot. I I would argue, you know, in in the movement that came in the civil rights movement, this is a term that lots of folks may may be familiar with, the walking wounded. Okay, when you look at the the SNCC listserv, the SNCC has a listserv. When you look at the SNCC listserv, and you look at SNCC events, and especially those that are memorialized on video and audio, you hear those SNCC workers who are now in their late 60s, early to mid 70s, and they talk about what it was like to be traumatized with the threat of murder, being physically uh, traumatized, sometimes sexually traumatized by, by law enforcement officers, that, you know, it was hard for them over the last, and still is hard over these last 60 years to navigate that. So having said that, Miss Richardson was always engaged with Cambridge. She led she she lent her her time and effort to Cambridge whenever they needed something to the to the, to the, the 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 Cambridge movement after she left. Uh, it was called Bath Black Action Federation, and she she still stayed engaged with them, but a much less public role, but very supportive role. She does the same kind of uh, social services work in all of these opportunities she has, employment opportunities, when she moves up to New York. And it's bread and butter issues, housing for the uh, uh, New York City Department for the Aging, meals on wheels, making sure people have you know access to health care, that they're transported to these, to these sites, that they have food. She worked at a co-op, a food co-op in northern New Jersey for some time. Uh, in the, the late 60s or early 70s, I, I haven't, I can't recall exactly. So everything, when you look through that last couple chapters of Miss Richards, of the book and Miss Richardson's life, you see somebody who's basically doing what I would characterize as social work. So like, like people get, you know, the credentialing and social work. She was doing social work, uh, bread and butter issues, housing, food, 
access to health care. Uh, one of her, ch- by the way, if anybody wants to make a donation on behalf of Miss Richardson's legacy and memory, uh, I would encourage them to consider two. One is Meals on Wheels, whatever the local, uh, you know, site is in your community, donate to the Meals on Wheels. She was a big supporter of that. So when I, when I make donations on her behalf, I do it to the Meals on Wheels uh, in, in, in Dorchester County and uh, breast cancer awareness and uh, cancer breast cancer research. Those are uh, t- the two charities. So she, she stayed engaged. It was meaningful work to her. Uh, she no, and many people at work never knew that, that she told me many people in those jobs never knew she was a civil rights activist. They had no clue. She didn't talk about it, which is typical of these civil rights workers. They just went back to their lives, kept doing that kind of meaningful work to help people in their communities live better lives, live hopefully better than just, you know, somewhat freer lives, but a lot more free lives. And that's what they, that's what she did. It really meant a lot to her and and it, it fed her. Uh, and I miss her. Obviously I miss her a lot. Well, the struggle is eternal. We're still doing it. We'll be doing it. It'll be going on after we're gone. Um, but it was, it was a, it was a really, uh, I really enjoyed reading the book. I think everybody, um, we, you know, we do have a lot of organizers, activists, advocates that listen and I think it would be an important book for them um, to sort of grab and, and sort of take something from. Um, but yeah, Gloria Richardson and Black Liberation. Um, Professor Joe Fitzgerald, thank you so much for, for coming in. My coming pleasure. all the way to the studio. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to do it. You know how to hit us up, folks. Uh, it's patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. It's at Highlands Bunker on Twitter. Um, yeah, show us some love. We've got some good, uh, we've got to. We have we have someone coming in who's going to address my my uh, state legislature grievances, and it's actually a state legislator, so that'll be fun. Um, that'll be coming up, and uh, we have a little uh, we have a little fun thing the call is doing. You all have been emailed. We'll talk more about it soon, uh, but we'll uh, always talk to you from the left because the left is best.